If you are using a Bible that's in the pew, it's page, I think it's page 810. I want to encourage you to open that up. If you're using your own Bible, if you're on the internet, I'd, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and let's open up and let's be looking at the very words of Christ as I preach out of the English Standard Version, that's the ESV. And I'll explain a couple times, I think, today when the translation varies a little bit. But while you're opening it up, let me tell you that I was riding with my cycling friends, I think it was two weeks ago, when we passed a female jogger on the path. So we're riding this way, northbound, she's jogging to the south. And the men that were with me began to make some inappropriate, lustful comments about her after we rode by. And I didn't say anything, and they noticed. And they asked what I thought of her. And I said, well, I saw her, but I wasn't thinking what they were thinking. That's what I told them. I wasn't thinking what you were thinking. And they immediately asked, which I knew was coming because they like to test me. They know I'm the pastor. And they say, are you, and I'm quoting, are you saying it's wrong to talk about how good a woman looks? And I said to them, well, would you have said what you said if your wives were with you? <laughs> Utter silence while we're pedaling. <laughs> Until finally each one of them said no. And I said this, then you probably wouldn't be loving your wives if you did, and that's how you know it's wrong. Well, we're going to learn this principle because six times Jesus is going to show us how our righteousness must be internal and how it ought to and must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I want to tell you, I wish that I could tell you that I have overcome all kinds of sin in every circumstance, but I can't. I struggle with sin, a myriad of them, just like you do. Yet Jesus said in last week's sermon, we looked at it. Now let's look at your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 20. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 20. Here's what Jesus said. This is startling. This would have detonated like a bomb to the people that were listening to this sermon. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to look at me for just a moment because right now, I have to tell you that we read things like that verse, and it sort of doesn't penetrate our hearts very often. All right, it was just a really incredible thing that God said, and you're thinking about how it's important for other people. Let's put you and let's put me right into the target of what he just said. Unless your righteousness, friend, and unless my righteousness exceeds that of the super-religious scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is startling. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious-looking people of the Jewish people in the first century. And they had taken God's law, and if you remember from last week, and if you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. They had taken God's law, the moral law especially, from the Word of God, and they had reduced it down to thousands of rules and regulations. And they were teaching that if you want to be righteous, then you've got to keep these 
faithfully and obediently, and it was settling on the people like a 10-ton burden, and nobody could lift it. Nobody could stand up under it. You see, Jewish religion became all about behavior and not about the heart, so different from God's focus all through the Old Testament. I'll give you two of them. One you're not going to see in the screen. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it come the issues of life, Proverbs 4, 23. He said in 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is Samuel of whom we were talking about in the child dedication, but the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So you ready? Look at me for a moment. This is really important. Honestly, what does your heart look like to God right now? He sees everything. There is nothing hidden from him. And what we begin to understand when the gospel begins to permeate in your mind, we begin to understand that right behavior or right living comes from hearts that have been made right with God. See, righteousness was always a work of God in the hearts of people. See, the moment that I, Tim Ackley, trusted Jesus to forgive my sins, I yielded my life to him, and he gave me a new heart. He created a heart transplant. Now, of course, we're not talking about the physical organ that pumps our blood. We're talking about the spiritual center of every human being. He gave me a new heart that was made right with God and his spirit. Now, listen, this is audacious. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know, one of the triune God persons came down into my heart to live, to dwell. And that spirit, his spirit is giving me the power. He's changing my desires so that I have the want to, to do what I ought to. See, the Pharisees said, well, here's what you ought to do, thousands of regulations. We have no power to give you the want to, you just have to do it. It's an absolutely fruitless, futile existence. But this is the righteousness, this new heart, the Spirit of God in it, giving you the power and the desire to do what you ought to do, give you the want to to do what you ought to do. That's the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees' hollow external righteousness. And Jesus brilliantly is about to show us what it looks like in six examples. We're going to look at the first today. And here we go, verse 21. You have to be in the Word of God. You ready? This is how you make sure what I'm preaching is right. So if you're not looking at your Word of God, I'm going to give you a second. Let's get your Bible out. You've got to be in it. You've got to be a people of God's Word. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now let me give you a few points on this. We're going to go through the rest of this passage. There's a lot of verses here. I usually like to take one or two verses at the most. We've got to hit a chunk but here's the first point. He's clarifying what it means to not murder. This is the clarification to not murder. Now, let me give you some background. You ready? This is interesting. I think you're going to like this. This is going to put some, some, some color to the, the text. This is going to give you the background, the context. Remember that the law of God, this right here, hold your Bible for a second. This has been given to us to reveal to us God's character and God's will. This is why it's so precious. 
This is why when some of us are not in this, and you wonder, why don't I see God's will for my life? Well, what on earth are you expecting? Do you think that God is going to sit down in a counselor's chair, lay you on the couch, and then tell you, here's my plan for your life? He's not going to do that. You cannot download it in a file and double-click and see the schematics for your entire life. It's never going to work that way. He streams it, and he streams his will to you as he reveals who he is. He reveals his character, and every day that you're in the Word of God, God. You will see his will for you more clearly. You will fall in love with God more dearly. This is the way it's always worked. It's the way it continues to work. And his character that you're going to see in his word is absolutely holy. You know what that means? Let me boil that word holy down to two words. It means eternally apart. And well, you got to add a little bit more. So let me bring a little bit better nuance to it. Here it is. Here's what holiness means. It means God is eternally apart and everlastingly beyond us. He is in heaven. We are on earth. This is why Ecclesiastes says, let your words be few. Don't prattle in God's presence. Don't take a thousand words into his presence. Go into his presence to let him show you who he is. He is holy, and his will is perfect in love. So in what way does this command to not murder reflect God's character and God's will? Well, you would think it's really simple. It's God doesn't like people killing people, and he doesn't really want us to do it. That's kind of what you would think, right? Well, it gets a little bit better than that, because every one of the Ten Commandments has a positive flip to it as well. We're going to bring that out. Let me tell you what it was like in Judaism. That's the Jewish religion at the time of Christ. It's almost, you ready? This is going to snap some of this into clarity if you know church history. Judaism at the time of Christ was almost eerily identical to the church in the 16th century. Think Martin Luther. Think John Calvin. Because in the 16th century, the scriptures were written in Latin. And almost none of the common people knew Latin. And so all of the authority was invested in the, pope, in the papal class, the priests, the pope. Well, I can't read Latin, so I need to listen to you tell me what the Word of God says. So you've got all the authority, and I've got to blindly obey that. Listen, this is why I'm telling you every week, get your Bibles out. I'm not the pope. While the Pope is fallible, able to make error, regardless of what he says, I am super fallible. I am really able to make errors. You've got to be in the Word of God. The authority does not rest in me alone. The, rest, the authority rests on anybody who is a Christian. We are the priesthood of believers. Amen? That was weak. In Jesus' day... The scriptures were not accessible to the average Jew, very similar to the 16th century. The average Jew during the Babylonian exile was inundated with a new language, and they lost their understanding of Hebrew. And now they were mostly speaking 
Aramaic. And here comes the Greek language called the Hellenization of the Jewish people, forced into the Greek culture and the Greek language. And the Septuagint, by the way, that's a really fancy word, super simple. It just is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Septuagint been translated 250 years before Christ came. Now, some of you are like tuning out history, boring, never liked it in school. Are you kidding me? This is so exciting. I think it is. 250 years before Christ, the Septuagint was created. But they're bulky. They're expensive. Most people couldn't buy one, and most people couldn't understand it. So they didn't go to the synagogue like you come to church with a Bible tucked under their arms. This is why it is so amazingly awesome that we've got the privilege to have the Bible in front of us and we can know God for ourselves through the Word of God. You don't need me telling you what to believe. They put great trust, first century, in the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees who had created thousands of these traditions, these rules, and eventually, listen, I want you to hear this. Eventually, all of those thousands of rules became more authoritative than this. Exactly like what happened in the 16th century with the Catholic Church. See, Jesus shattered these traditions over and over. And he returns Scripture, the Word of God, to its rightful, clear place of authority. And he's doing that here. So look at your Bibles again. You have heard that was said to those of old, but I say to you. Now, he's not referring those of old to the law of Moses. He's referring to the traditional teachings of the human scribes. In fact, he's going to really nail them in Matthew chapter 15. And he's going to say this. Now, you've got to feel the discomfort of the, of the disciples when he's saying this. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said that this people honors me with their lips, but their, hearts are far, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's talking about all of these traditions, these rules, these regulations. See, they took the commandment to not murder that Moses gave to Israel. And here's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They reduced it to the point where you could say with self-righteous bravado and arrogance, well, I've never murdered anyone, therefore I am righteous. They reduced it down to the external act of murder. Well, interestingly, the King James Version, if you use that, here says, thou shalt not kill. They translate the sixth commandment in Exodus the same way. But the Hebrew word doesn't mean kill. Now, if I were you, I would put this in your Bible. I think it's a worthy note in your margin. This is a specific word. It's translated murder or unlawful killing. So thou shalt not murder or unlawfully kill anyone. It's never, ever been used for God-sanctioned war or capital punishment, or lethal self-defense in the Bible. That's not what's being forbidden. It's always used of premeditated killing, various kinds of manslaughter or assassination. In short, don't kill means no unlawful killing. It violates God's justice. And look what Jesus says. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This command to not unlawfully take a life, 
means we should do nothing. Now, you ready? Now, watch what I'm going to do. Now, look at me for a second. I'm going to flip it over. You can do this with each of the Ten Commands. I'm going to flip it over for you, okay? We saw the negative, do not murder. Let me flip it to the positive. The positive is don't murder with excellence. <laughs> you can't do that. The positive is better than that. It says we should do nothing that endangers our neighbor's life. In other words, everything we do, let it bring life. Let it help life along. The command in the positive, it means we should do everything we can to honor and preserve the life of another. So don't think, just do not murder. That's what the Pharisees did. Well, I've never ended a life, so I guess I'm righteous. You got to flip it. Have you done everything you can to honor and to preserve life? Now, before you answer that, wait till I drill into this. And by the way, you can see this this preserving life in Jewish law when it comes to the capital punishment part of it. Very interesting, the Old Testament. Let me tell you how it worked. If you were brought to charges of capital, or uh, rather of murder, and you were in a trial at a Jewish court, well, God commanded already that there are six cities of refuge. None of them could be 30 miles from anybody in the land of Israel. You, they were set up strategically. You were one day's journey, or if you're running, probably quicker, but you're one day's journey from any city of refuge anywhere in Israel. And they were established to protect somebody that was accused of killing another person. You flee to that refuge city. And there you had to be given a trial. The person who was related to the person who was killed could not exact retribution. It had to go to a legal trial. And it was the victim's next of kin who had to do the executing in a capital punishment. It couldn't be a disconnected prison official with a black hood so that nobody knew their identity. There had to be no less than two eyewitnesses. Circumstantial evidence was never accepted in the case of a capital punishment trial. The court was open all day just in case fresh evidence. This is the day of the, of the, uh, the execution of the criminal. The court was open all day just in case fresh evidence of the innocence of the accused might have been obtained. But then on that day of execution, there was a man sent throughout the city in advance of the condemned person. They were always led through the city, outside of the city to be killed. There was somebody sent in front of that person and hollering out, shouting out, is there anybody that has evidence to his innocence? You see, at the courthouse, before they started the journey through the city, or even after it, even when they went out of the city, somebody always stood at the courthouse, and while there was somebody on horseback or a mule within the distance of eyesight, and if the flag, if a white cloth was waved, that meant evidence had come in, and the person on horseback or the mule would ride as fast as they could to the execution site to delay it until the judge or the judges could look at the evidence. There was no, no limit to the appeal process if somebody could advance further pleas of innocence. This is Jewish law. They were preserving life. 
It was determined to save life rather than to kill it because life was regarded as precious. So back to Jesus. You shall not murder was a prohibition against unlawful killing. It was a command to preserve life. The command to not murder was given so that life could be cherished because every human being is created in the image of God. See, murder destroys that image in another but I want you to hear this, you ready? Because now the whole sermon goes inward to the heart. Murder destroys the image in another, but we harm and destroy that image by way more means than just actually ending somebody's life. And that's where we go next. Point number two, the character of a murderer. We looked at the clarification to not murder. I gave you the Jewish backdrop of it. But now we're going to look at the character of a murderer. And let me tell you something. Ready? Now look at me because you better brace yourself for this. There's not one person in this room that's not a murderer. Not one. And the disciples of Christ must change. I'm going to show you how. Murder begins with unrighteous anger and hatred. And then it moves to insults and then slander and separation. That's how it begins in the heart. Jesus has taken us from the exterior where the scribes and the Pharisees live. Now he's going to take us down into the world of the heart and show us the roots of murder because that's where God sees. Here's the first one. It's letter A on your outline, this anger. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. This is the root. This is the first root of a murderer's heart. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can we just say this? Let's just get it out. You ready? There's almost none of our anger that is righteous. Very, very little. David Paulison, whom I really respect, once wrote, he's a theologian counselor, once wrote that 95% of anger is unrighteous. Now, of course, he doesn't know that to be exactly true. He's using a little, a little bit of hyperbole, but what he's saying is almost none of our anger is righteous. 95% is unrighteous is what he said. In the Greek, there's two words for anger. The first one I'm going to tell you is not the one Jesus uses. It's talking about anger that quickly blazes up and just as quickly dies down. It's like the burning of straw, really quick to burn up and out. But the second one is the one that Jesus uses. And this word describes a deep, long-lived, brooding, undying anger. One that is so deep that sometimes you forget to feel it. It's called bitterness. This anger refuses to forgive, refuses reconciliation, refuses to do all you can to be at peace with your neighbor, as far as it depends on you, defends personal rights, and in their mind, they are an incredibly talented attorney because they can put the spin on anything. It stews and it nurses wrath and it will not be pacified and sometimes and often it seeks revenge, even if that revenge is utter, total separation. Friends, listen, you got to brace yourself. That is heart murder. You're a murderer. I'm a murderer when we do that. 
The angry person would be deserving judgment, meaning the death penalty would be justice. But then it goes on. Jesus goes on. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This is a second root of heart murder. It's called contempt. Some of your Bibles might have the word raka here. in It's an Aramaic word, very familiar at the time, but we do not any longer truly know with any kind of precision what that word means. It seems to be, most would say, a word of arrogant contempt. It reduces the person that you're angry at or that you're insulting or contemptuous with to the level of a nothing, a nobody, an insignificant idiot who is a waste of life. It's an attack on the image of God in another person. When you're name-calling, even if it's in your mind, while driving on the road, you're doing this. Because this is what God sees. Your heart is in full view of our God. And you might think, well, it never came out of my mouth. Are you kidding me? It's written in the book that God writes in. Every thought and intention of the heart he's dividing and he's weighing to see what brings honor to him and what doesn't see contempt is an attack on the image of god in another person and the guilty one the one guilty of of contempt he says deserved to come before a ruling council look what he says well what is that well we're not really sure here unless you know the jewish backdrop a council in a small town of less than 150 people consisted of three elders of the town. If it was a larger town, seven elders, always the odd number. And then in a city, 23 elders. And you had to come before the elder. Well, Jesus is saying, if you've got contempt for another human being, then you deserve to come before the council. And the right ruling would be a guilty sentence of a murderer. Now, are you squirming yet? Because I know for a fact that I've done both of these. And I know even better now that I've got to kill these by the grace and the power of God. And I know that you're guilty of them as well. I know all of us are. We just don't take it serious. And Jesus is saying, neither did the scribes and the Pharisees. But if you're going to be my disciple, you got to live a whole lot better than that. you got to have my grace working in you, and your righteousness better exceed theirs, or you're not coming into the kingdom of heaven. He says, gives one more root, a third one, slander. And he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We see a progression of seriousness beginning with anger toward another, then arrogantly demeaning contemptuously the image of God in a person. And now it's the worst. It's slander. It's contemptuously calling somebody a fool. It's an attack on a person's character and moral condition. Listen, when you do that, you've displaced God and become the judge. You've come up on the throne and you have pounded the gavel and you have sat in judgment of that person and you've said, God, you got to get off because you're not doing a good job with him or her. So let me pound the gavel. It literally means the word fool, empty-headed, block-headed, somewhat similar to brainless idiot or jerk. The word gives us, by the way, our word moron. 
And since the Jewish people put such weight to a person's name, when you call them a fool, it's a serious public slander that stripped a person of significance. Now, we think it's the other way around. We would think, well, you know, anger is going to be the worst, and then probably contempt, and then slander. Well, you know, it's bad, but we all do it. Jesus reverses it. You see, slander aims to destroy a person's reputation and their name. It's a terrible act of hatred. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates, meaning has active ill will toward his brother, is a murderer. The one who hates is a murderer and is, Jesus says, liable, meaning deserving of the hell of fire. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that the physical act of murder is wrong. Well, Jesus would agree, but then he takes him down into the heart. And he taught and he gave three examples of murder that begins in the heart, though it's never acted out. Friends, it's urgent that we deal with this anger. It's urgent that we stop being in contempt of other people arrogantly. It's incredibly urgent that we stop climbing up on the judge's stand and judging people and attacking their morals, especially those of a brother or sister in Christ. See, we've learned so far what the clarification of murder is, and then we've learned what the character of a murderer's heart is. But now Jesus is going to give us two examples of the conduct that he expects for every disciple of Jesus. And look what he writes. So if you are offering, and this is what he preached. So if you are offering your gift at an altar, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this anger, this contempt, 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 this slander affects. Now listen, you got to hear this. They all affect our relationship with God. It all pollutes our worship. And this is the point that Jesus is pressing to his disciples. You see, the Jews believed and practiced that the breach between a person and God Vertical. Now I'm looking vertical. They believed that that vertical breach could never be healed until human beings could reconcile their differences. If a person was offering a sacrifice for theft, for example, it was an ineffective sacrifice. God did not want it. It would not heal that breach. It would not restore fellowship with God until what was stolen was returned or compensated. And if it was discovered that it hadn't, that the person who it had stolen had not compensated or had not returned it, then the sacrifice that person brought, you know what would happen? The sacrifice, let's say it's a, a lamb, it would be destroyed as an unclean animal and thrown down into the valley of Hinnom and burned. See, a Jew brought his sacrifice. I want you to get this, ready? Try to picture this in your mind's eye. They go up 15 steps to the Temple Mount. They go into the court of Gentiles. From there, they go into the court of women. They take their sacrifice through that huge, gigantic gate, which was awe-inspiring. 
into the court of Israel. The next court in was the court of priests. And in, the, in that court was the holy place, the temple, the holy place, and the most holy place. Well, a Jewish man would bring his sacrifice up those steps through the court of Gentiles, through the women's court, into the court of Israel. And there was a railway that kept them from going any further. They could not go into the court of priests. And in that court was a bronze laver, the altar, and of course the temple. But they stood at the rail, and this is the picture that Jesus evokes. They're standing at the rail, and the trumpets have sounded, if it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover in particular, the signal for the priest which had the knife at the throat of the sheep, or rather, the, the, the man would do that. The man would have to slit the throat. The priest would hold the bowl to collect the blood, which would then be passed up. Some of it splashed against the altar. The rest of it poured down a hole, a conduit, that went under the temple wall down into the brook Kidron, turning it red during major festivals. But the, the priest had given the signal, slit the throat, and if you're just ready to cut the throat of your lamb, and there remember that somebody has something against you, stop. I believe they would take the lamb to a special holding place, allowing you to go back out the temple, go find the person and as far as it depends on you, establish peace again. Then come back and give it to God because he's not going to take it. He's not accepting it. See, this had always been the point of the sixth command. The scribes made it only about literal murder. But Jesus taught, he re-clarified it, he brought it back to his level that it was supposed to have been all the while. There is an undivided solidarity that you must have between loving God and loving your neighbor. And if there's a breach this way, you better stop bringing it this way because God doesn't want it until you restore See, there's a lot of people, they have a dry, a lot of Christians, they have a dry, distant relationship with God. You know why? Because you're bringing your gift of worship to God and there's an ongoing breach with somebody else and he's not accepting it. There's an urgency is what Jesus is getting to. There's an urgency of obedience that the disciple must have. Restore your breach. If you're angry at the heart with somebody else, if you have slandered them, if you are contempt in contempt of them, restore the breach and then bring your worship. Don't try doing it without it. And then he underscores with a second example. Come to terms quickly, verse, 21, uh, verse 25, I think it is. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he brings up the imagery of debt. Which, if it's a case at a Jewish court, it would be settled by the council of elders. Which, here's what they would do. Let's say that somebody accused me of betraying, repaying of a debt. They had loaned me 10 days wages and I didn't pay it back. They had the power to do a citizen's arrest. 
And they would take me to court, literally accompany me often to the court. It was a time that the judges or the elders on the council would establish. And we would often, almost always, go there together. And Jesus is bringing this imagery up. You can settle the matter on the way to court so that it doesn't have to go to trial. Because once it goes to trial, the verdict will stand. And if I'm found guilty, the court officer had the authority to imprison me until every single penny was repaid. But guess what? You can't earn money in prison. You can't earn money in prison. Yet I'm not getting out until it's repaid. See, the point Jesus makes is, again, understand the consequences. The council, God which is where they're pointing, will hold you responsible. It is urgent to settle accounts with others, even now, while you're on the way to the trial. It's the point. The longer you wait, the more anger settles in, and the harder it will be to find peace. Listen, if you've got a bitterness and a separation with somebody that's years on in the making now, you will understand how incredibly difficult it will be to reconcile. Do it now before it gets harder. But even if it's hard, you better do it if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. And even worse is that Jesus is impressing upon his audience not the fear of an earthly judge, but the fact that every single one of us must appear before the almighty judge, God. And oftentimes that judgment in the believer is occurring now. As anger and broken relationships will strip you of physical, spiritual, and emotional health. So Jesus begins with the first of six examples. And he shows us what true righteousness looks like in life. And we saw the clarification of what it always meant not to murder. There is a negative, don't kill unlawfully, but there's a positive, do everything you can to preserve life. Yes, stand against abortion. Yes, stand for judgment or justice rather of refugees and and those who are being sold into slavery and sex slavery all through the United States. You stand for them, you do that. That's part of what it means to keep this commandment. And those who belong to his kingdom must be different than those in the world, like the scribes and the Pharisees. And murder begins way down deep in the heart with anger, contempt, and slander. They're murder weapons. And every time it breaks the command of God and it makes you and it makes me a murderer. So what do you do? You be urgent and you settle matters quickly because your worship is polluted and it's in vain until you do. And this is a heavy sermon, amen? What do you do now? I'm going to tell you the only right response. If in your mind's eye somebody has come... And their face is loomed in your, in your mind that there is a breach. And you're partly responsible. And you've not yet done everything you can to heal it. The only option for you is immediately after this service, you go make it right. You don't wait. You don't take a week. 
You don't pray for an opportunity. God's already told you what to do. He doesn't want your worship until you're ready to be obedient. That is the only right response. Amen.